Above all, though, it makes you wonder about men and power. Does it corrupt or do the corrupt seek it for further gratification of their desires? And why are they so willing to protect each other, however high the toll of misery paid by their victim? It's a good blurb from Lucy Mangan of Guardian talking about our feature review this week. It's called Athlete A. It's an excellent documentary, which was just released on Netflix on June 24th. I encourage you all to check it out. In addition to Athlete A, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite shows of all time. It's called Oz, a heavily influential show on HBO, a drama series set in prison that aired from 1997 to 2003. I went back and watched a few episodes of that for sentimental sake. And also The Lady from Shanghai, 1947, Orson Welles wrote, directed, and starred a film that was controversial for its time. I finally got around to seeing it on TCM. And also with our entertainment news, uh, sad news. In fact, it's got the news this morning. Carl Reiner passing away, the comedy legend and Dick Van Dyke show creator. Of course, we're taping this on a Tuesday. You'll be listening to it on Wednesday. We've got other news involving movie theaters opening up. Our Mount Rushmore in honor of Athlete A is about the best sports documentaries of all time. And for Total Recall, Joel and I have decided we're going to do everything from 1990 to 2020. So we've got four more Total Recalls to go. We're going to squeeze in the 2019 Oscar those were the films from 2018. Thank you, as always, for checking us out. I really appreciate the support. Hope everybody is staying safe. Um, I want to check out some reviews here. Please go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. I rank my movies out of four Maple Leafs. You can rank us out of five stars. Got this one here from Max Take Maker. I started listening to Cinephile last year. Loved it immediately. Great reviews. The Sopranos rewatch is the best. I've also enjoyed Total Recall. Don't stop doing it. All right, we got four more to go. I was wondering if you guys are keeping up with this huge best movie bracket that's been on Twitter. The voting is fun. Reminds me how many movies I have to watch. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. Max Tackmaker, I have not been keeping up with this best movie bracket. I don't know what Twitter handle it's on. Joe, are you aware of this? I am not aware of it, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what people narrow down as the best movie ever. So I'll, I'll look into it and we'll get back to it. All right, we'll get some intel. DBlack519, I really enjoyed the interview with Barry Sonnenfeld. How great was he? All of his behind-the-scenes stories were so interesting. It gave me great insight into the movie business. Just a random question. What are your thoughts on the film The Usual Suspects? I really enjoyed this movie. I just thought about it a few years ago. A phenomenal movie. Are you kidding? I saw it when I was in high school. Uh, in 1995 it came out, so I was 17. Did not see the ending coming. Remember, my English teacher said she saw the ending coming. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, why? If you read a lot of Agatha Christie books, you know the ending's coming. I'm like, yeah, sure. Unreliable narrator and all the rest of that. Uh, D Black 519, I think it's an excellent movie. I have not seen many Kevin Spacey movies since uh, you know everything came out about him, so I don't know if that would color my perception of the film, but I thought he was tremendous in the movie as verbal Kent. Uh, obviously, everyone remembers the, the final 10 minutes or so um, incredibly gratifying, but I think the whole movie is really exceptionally well-paced. Brian Singer directed it, won an Academy Award, I believe, for the screenplay by Christopher McQuarrie, and all the performances. I mean, give me the, give me the keys. Uh, Benicio Del Toro, uh, Gabriel Byrne, Kevin Pollack, Pete Possilway's playing a Pakistani. I mean, the whole cast is great. Uh, got this review from uh, a question mark, a dollar sign, an exclamation point, Okay. This is a great show for any film buff. However, the one flaw is way too many spoilers. Adnan blows through all major plot points. I quickly realized I can't listen unless I've seen what he's reviewing. He should have a secondary section with spoilers like slash film cast. Uh, that is a good point. Uh, I, you know, Lately, we've been reviewing a lot of older movies. Like, for example, The Lady from Shanghai from 1947. So I'm not going to feel bad about giving away spoilers on that. Uh, but certainly for new films, yeah, there's a caveat there. Sure, I like to give out what, what's happening in the story. As I've discussed with Joe before, if I don't like the movie, I'm, I'm inclined to give more spoilers. But 
Uh, that's fine. Yeah, that's a totally fair point. If you don't want to know what's happening, just wait to watch it first. But make sure you listen to the other stuff, okay? Skip my reviews and listen to Mount Rushmore and Total Recall once you've seen all those latest releases. Uh, Dooley Show, big fan of Adnan from the ESPN days. Energetic, positive energy is refreshing. Thank you so much. And Meadow Pond. Love Adnan from the GM Shuffle. He does a great job here. Happy I tuned in. Yes, please do check out my other podcast on Cadence 13, which Joe actually produces as well. That's called the GM Shuffle. It's me and my man, Michael Lombardi, who is not only a great NFL talking head, uh, won a couple of Super Bowls, of course. He's worked with the Raiders, the Patriots, et cetera, but also the biggest Sopranos fan you'll ever meet. So check out the GM Shuffle right here through Cadence 13. Athlete A follows a team of reporters from the Indianapolis Star as they investigate claims of abuse at USA Gymnastics, one of the nation's most prominent Olympic organizations. Two years later, an Olympic doctor is behind bars, the U.S. Congress is demanding answers, and hundreds of survivors are speaking out. Equal parts devastating and inspiring, the film reveals the culture of cruelty that was allowed to thrive within elite-level gymnastics, the attorney fighting the institutions, and most importantly, the brave athletes who refused to be silenced, fought the system, and triumphed. Athlete A is an excellent documentary, as I mentioned off the top, just released on Netflix, and it is about this scandal which overtook USA Gymnastics and has, I think for many of us, changed our perception of the way you even look at college athletics. If what happened at Penn State and Jerry Sandusky wasn't enough to have you change your perception a little bit, well, certainly Athlete Day and what happened with all these women that were abused by Dr. Larry Nasser is certainly enough to change your mind about what's happening and make you fearful about your children and about your neighbor's kids and what's happening at the, all these levels. I think the story is really smart to, to begin with Carrie Strug, which for many people like myself who don't know a ton about gymnastics, I know Carrie Strug, sure. On a broken leg, she stuck the landing. And it's immortalized as a really proud moment in American Olympic history. But as the documentary makes clear, it's actually a terribly sad moment because she does the first jump, falls, and you realize she's in terrible pain and she's limping. And if anybody had any sort of compassion they would ask her and say, do you want to do this? Do you want to continue? And if you can't, that's fine. But because your gold medal is at stake, because winning at all costs and toughen up and fight through it, girl, and you're all good here, she realized that she had no chance to be able to even voice her opinion, therefore does it. Six to landing on a broken leg is in tears. And it's interesting when you watch it, listening to the perspectives of those, not Carrie Strzok herself, but other female gym, gymnasts. And a moment that I would have thought was, was you know held up as the highlight of U.S. amateur athletics. You watch it again, you go, no, that's the height of American cruelty. Like, this girl has no chance, but hey, broken leg, whatever, you're going to win the gold medal. Like, it's awfully sad. And it's an indictment of the entire process. These victims were silenced by the authorities for years. We can blame Dr. Larry Nasser a ton. Absolutely, he is a disgusting, vile human being who was violating these women. But Steve Penny was running USA Gymnastics. He was told by several of the victims' mothers, hey, listen, I don't think what this guy's doing is kosher. And he completely turned a blind eye. You know, you can, you can blame the FBI, who were very slow to react with regards to their investigation. And Nasser himself, I mean, this is just an absolute sociopath. This guy, Michigan State doctor, working supposedly pro bono for USA Gymnastics, and he would look after these girls and completely take advantage of them. And as one of the girls says, I believe it's Rachel Den Hollander, or maybe Jamie Dancers, through tears, you know, she's saying, I almost look forward to sessions with him because he was the only one that was nice. Everybody else was so unrelentingly cruel. He was the one that even though he was abusing me, he was actually nice. He would give us chocolate. He would give us candies. He would compliment us. He would fix my injuries. And then he would abuse me. And specifically what Dr. Nasser was doing 
was he would use this complicated jargon. And you see it several times. You know, he's talking about the pelvic bone and the pubic bone, and this must relate to this. And at one point, he's being interrogated by uh, law enforcement saying, listen, you guys wouldn't understand this. And there's a real sanctimonious arrogance to that. Like, you wouldn't understand this. I'm just doing this stuff. Don't worry about it. But amidst his methods was vaginal insertion. And once one of the girls told her mom that, it doesn't take a brain scientist. It doesn't take any sort of doctor to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. hang on a second. What does that have to do with curing your injuries from gymnastics? your knees, your hamstrings, your quad muscles, like what does vaginal insertion have to do? And he's not using gloves. And he's not asking your permission before he does this. Like red flags all over the place. And again, a couple of these moms went to the authorities and they were just told, no, 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 like Dr. Nasser knows what he's doing. It's a complicated process when you're fixing athletes with gymnastics. And of course, it was all hogwash. It was all nonsense. And in fact, Dr. Nasser's downfall was once he started getting investigated, by the way, that scene is absolutely riveting. It's done from an overhead inside camera where the, the law enforcement is asking. And, and he does that whole thing. Well, you don't understand. She's okay, I get it. But you're not giving me an answer. Why are you doing this to these women? And at one point, the real red flag was anal insertion. It's like, well, hang on a second. How does this have anything to do with fixing their injuries? There's one story the mother tells that he was specifically blocking her gaze. You know, she's in the room with her daughter, who's like 16 years old. And he's you know, doing this vaginal insertion and violating his, her daughter, but he's blocking himself from her view. So it's obstructive view. She can't see. She figures, well, he's a doctor, right? We trust the doctor. He's looking after my daughter. And he had an erection and he's just covering himself up. And, and one of the ones even said, I saw he had an erection and just said, oh, this poor man, he can't control himself. He can't help himself. You know, this has nothing to do with him being uh, aroused by my daughter. And in fact, when the law enforcement official asked him, you know, did you ever get an erection while doing this? You know, he starts hemming and hawing. He says, well, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, guys get erections all the time. So, no, no, they don't. Like, it's only if you're being sexually aroused. It's actually quite straightforward. Did you or did you not? And you see at that moment, you know, the cracks start to fade. And in fact, what led to his downfall was that in the first article that was written, and props, of course, to the journalists who did so, the Indianapolis Star, and by the way, the documentary does an excellent job of showing their version of events, gathering witnesses, you know, the bravery of these girls, first and foremost, but then, of course, these, these journalists have to cover the story, too. And one of the guys said after he met with Dr. Nasser, you know, he was like begging and pleading with him, don't write this story. I didn't do anything wrong, I swear. And he said, listen, a part of him did feel that, not connection, certainly, but a little bit of compassion. You, know, you meet a guy who said, listen, my life's going to be over. My wife, my kids, like, please don't do this. I swear I did nothing wrong. But yet he's got these victims on the other side and his own morality saying, I've got to report the story and we'll let the courts dictate what is justice. And in that story, he denied any sort of vaginal insertion. And that was his downfall because immediately every girl that he treated, he did that to. So all of a sudden you have three girls saying that he violated them. Once that was in print, now you got 20 girls saying, no, 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 no. He did that to me too. And then 20 becomes 50. And 50 becomes 100. And you have hundreds of girls speaking up. And I think the most powerful moment of the documentary is when he's on the stand. Not even on the stand, excuse me. He's sitting next to his defense attorney. And the prosecution ask that each girl goes up there and it be allowed to make a statement to him. And it's incredibly empowering. I mean, you see these women whose self-esteem was taken from them. As one of the journalists points out, I think it may have been actually, no, excuse me, one of the attorneys, defense attorney points out, prosecuting attorney, excuse me, prosecuting attorney for the women says, for a lot of these girls, this was their first sexual experience. It's their first time ever. And it's with an older guy who's abusing them. Like that, that isn't just a bad day at the office. Like that has repercussions for years. That sends you to therapy. Like that sends you to serious trauma and dealing with that. And it impacts all of your future relationships. And the way that some of these women go up there and tell him, hey, listen, what you did was wrong. They're looking right at him. 
And he, he is ashamed, obviously, and staring down. Like, what you did was, was so wrong and so cruel and so hurtful. And shame on you. And you deserve to be in prison for a long time, which, of course, he is. But it's not just one man. It was a cover-up on multiple levels. And nobody makes documentaries to make money. You know, documentarians are like people who work in theater. Like, no one's doing it for the money. You do it because you love it. You do it because you care about it. And in this instance, you're doing the right thing. Three and a half Maple Leafs I give to Athlete A, an excellent and important documentary currently available on Netflix. Joe, I know you saw it as well. What did you think? I'm so glad you brought up that Carrie Strug scene. I was uh, six during the 96 Olympics, and I remember watching that on TV, one of my earlier memories, and my parents just going wild and trying to explain the context of that moment and to hear these other gymnasts talk about that moment and just how messed up it actually was and just how in-depth they go. You're right. It's just it's worth the watch just for that reason. But Adnan, um, I'm, I'm curious, just from your specific perspective as someone who has worked in and f- covered and followed college sports, how does this movie particularly shape your perception of college sports? Well, you're right, Joe. I haven't worked at ESPN in you know, four years. I covered college football and college basketball, and, and you're right. I, I think I became increasingly cynical over time, and you certainly, listen, we all work in sports because we love sports, and I appreciate the journey for so many of these athletes and you try to focus on the good above the bad. But I think after a while, you look at it, you see corruption is rampant and that players are taken advantage of, whether it's, you know, financially or in a monstrous way here being violated by these doctors. And it's, uh, it's certainly eye-opening and it's very scary and it's very alarming. And I think of this review in answer to your question from Jake Coyle of Associated Press, after athlete A, you may never again watch America's pursuit for gold with quite the same enthusiasm. And I think that's the key. When you see the indictment of this culture of mental and physical abuse that happened at U.S. Gymnastics, it's tough to not imagine where else it's happening as well, right? 110%. And I hope that this documentary and these stories can help create systemic change to protect our our young athletes, our young impressionable athletes, for sure. No doubt about it. Well said. Check out Athlete A on Netflix. Next up in our reviews, the show Oz, one of my favorite shows of all time, a grim and graphically raw drama about life and often death, and an experimental prison ward called Emerald City at the Oswald State Correctional Facility, nicknamed Oz. Alternately praised and criticized for its profane language and extreme violence, but creator Tom Fontana's uncompromising study of men and women behind bars, staffers, as well as prisoners is compellingly written and performed. That's a hell of a show. My man Jay Nats, John Natalin, we were back in college at Ryerson. We would love watching Oz together. In Canada, we had Showcase. You did not have HBO at the time, so you had to wait for the episodes to air on Showcase. So we were always a little bit behind. And of course, I was such a nut. I'm always reading Entertainment Weekly and Premier Magazine. So, I, you know, spoiler alerts. I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to know. The new season of Oz coming soon. And then we just, you know, try to binge watch the whole thing uh, before binge watching was really on Vogue. But it's a powerful show. Going back and watching the pilot, some of it is a little bit dated. Uh, the episode is about Dino Ortolani, who uh, uses at least a half a dozen gay slurs in reference to an inmate who's kind of looking at him a little, you know, in a sexual manner, he ends up beating the crap out of him. He's got this violence, this temper that he can't get a hold of, even while he's in prison, even though he's a wise guy. And this whole issue of sodomy comes up quite a bit in the show. And it reminds me that at the time, it, the show had a huge gay audience because a lot of these guys are naked and it's um, you know virtually all male cast. There's a couple of females, which I'll get to in a second. 
But, you know, virtually all males, all in great shape, often naked, maybe having sex together. So it actually was a huge gay audience at the time. Um, but the show really details how bad these guys have it. And it's interesting. You think of grim and you might think of the word grimy, but it actually isn't grimy. When I watched the pilot again, I was struck by the lighting. It's very bright light. As one of the characters makes clear early on, I believe it's McManus, who's uh, played by a really good actor, uh, Terry Kinney. And he's the one who's overseeing everything and he really believes in rehabilitation for prisoners. You know, in Emerald City, there's no place you can hide. There's no, like, everyone has their own room, but it's not like individual cells and it's bright light and it's one circular room, which is very claustrophobic. So you're in prison and it is one room and you can't escape, but you really don't give them much privacy and everyone can see what the other guy's doing. And it shows the different groups. Um, on a personal level, it was the first time I ever saw a Muslim character on, on television or movies. And that was the great Eamon Walker playing Kareem Saeed. So you got their group of people. You got Harold Perrineau playing Augustus Hill, a great conceit by Tom Fontana. He's the narrator. He's in a wheelchair, and he literally narrates the show. Very Shakespearean move. He opens the show. He closes the show. He comments on the action, kind of like the Greek chorus. You've got J.K. Simmons before he won an Oscar for Whiplash. And when I interviewed him, and you can check out the interview on a previous episode of Cinephile, the first thing I said to him, listen, you might win Oscars. And you might be a great character actor. Everyone knows him as Spider-Man. For me, I'll never forget Vern Schillinger. He plays a neo-Nazi on this show who is absolutely ruthless. Uh, Ernie Hudson, you know him from uh, Ghostbusters? He plays the warden. And then Dean Winters, he's ubiquitous in commercials all the time right now. He plays Ryan O'Reilly. And then you got the women who, as I mentioned, Rita Moreno. That's right. Rita Moreno herself plays Sister Pete. And Edie Falco, Carmela Soprano. She's actually in the first episode. She plays one of the prison uh, guards as well. So... It's an eclectic cast, to say the least, but that review certainly is right about the graphically raw. I mean, like I said, the pilot's a little bit dated, but still strong. I went and watched another episode called Escape from Oz. That's the finale of season two. Kareem Saeed's got a great scene there where he refuses the pardon of the governor, but there's a scene of a guy who gets crucified. I mean, it is about as violent as it gets. Schillinger and the Nazis hold this guy down. You got the, literally, I'm not kidding. They have hammer and nails, and they're just hammering this guy's hands into the basketball court, like it is vicious. You're like, oh my God, because he's a priest who abused his kid. You're like, all right, now we're going to crucify you like Jesus. I'm like, oh my God, it is a violent show to say the least. But it's also very creative. I also watched another episode called Variety, which I love. And that episode was a musical. I remember at the time, I got a lot of pub in EW, the entertainment circle. I was like, wait, Oz, that tough, gritty, no holds barred show is doing a musical? I'm like, yeah, well, you got Rita Moreno, so why not? She, she's out of the gate singing Days Like These. And later on, you've got Beecher and Schillinger, which really was the heart of the show. I mean, Beecher and Schillinger was about as big as it gets. I mean, listen, Rita Moreno is from West Side Story, for God's sake. She played Anita. She can sing. But you've got Beecher and Schillinger, J.K. Simmons, and Lee Turgeson singing back and forth. And it's hilarious. I believe they're singing a Barbara Streisand song. They're doing a love duet, and it's just really funny. You're interrupting the action for these songs, and it just showed how um, original Fontana was. If you're wondering the name Tom Fontana, I've heard that before. Yes, you have Homicide, Life on the Street, another one of my favorite shows. The other great Baltimore cop show, not called The Wire. He and Barry Levinson always in tandem together. They did Homicide, they did Oz, and you see Levinson's name, the excellent director of Rain Man and other films. He's also an executive producer of the show. It was certainly fun to go back and watch a show that I loved from 20 years ago. I don't think it's for everybody, but... It certainly was uh, brutal. And I think, by the way, I keep mentioning the violence, but also very humane because it shows these characters, some of them at least, striving to do better. It shows the importance of rehabilitation in prisons. But oftentimes the show is cynical 
and it thinks that a lot of these guys cannot change their nature, and they are criminals to the core, and there's a bright light that comes through once in a while, and then oftentimes in the character of Tobias Beecher, it gets extinguished. Although there's one scene, and all I'm going to tell you is this. If you go back, you can hear the interview with J.K. Simmons. I mean, he literally shits on a guy's face. J.K. Simmons, Vern Schillinger, like he's so abusive to Beecher in the first season. When Beecher gets revenge on him, it literally defecates on his face. I mean, that's one of the most unforgettable moments ever in TV history. Bruce Fratz of Entertainment Weekly. Every time Beecher thinks he's out, Oz pulls him back in. For the show's diehard fans, that's a pleasingly familiar feeling. Uh, Richard Schickel of Time Magazine, Oz, so feral and explosive is the black sheep of quality television. But who said art had to be pretty or that the road to human understanding was paved with yellow bricks? And one more, Zach Shark of IndieWire, at times brutally grounded and surreally poetic. The show uses its fictional environment as a microcosm for our society at large, showing how the divides and conflicts manifested in prison first start in the neighborhoods we live in. Oz. For me, police, one of my favorites of all time. Joe, you've never seen it, but you're aware of how influential this early HBO show was on all the other prestige television that was to follow, like The Sopranos, uh, like Mad Men, like Breaking Bad, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear people now just say that if it wasn't for Oz, The Sopranos would have never had the lane that they would have had or the liberties that they would have been able to take with that show if the show hadn't preceded it. But with The Sopranos, I know... You know, everyone cites Tony Soprano, an anti-hero that you feel sympathy towards and that you actually root for. Is there an element of that with Oz? Is there, are there characters who are kind of anti-heroes that you, you want to succeed? No doubt, because all these guys are in prison because they have committed a crime. So by their very nature, there are anti-heroes. Beecher is the guy who's the most sympathetic because he's an attorney who was a drunk driver, killed a girl, but you can see him in prison. And he's completely out of his depth. You can see this guy completely gets, you know, beaten up by Schillinger and the Nazis, and all of a sudden, like, you know, he's their, he's their mistress. He literally has to show up, like, in a wig and wearing makeup, and it's just so humiliating. And you realize guys like this, they have no chance in prison. Uh, but he's a character that you kind of root for because he seems so sympathetic and genuine that, you know, one bad act cannot override who he is as a human being. And then there's other guys, like I said, like Schillinger, who is just a... I mean, he's such a charismatic actor, J.K. Simmons, but he's, there's really nothing redeeming about the guy. And then there's guys like Kareem Saeed, who I mentioned, who are kind of up and down. I mean, there's... Ryan O'Reilly was a very funny uh, character played by Dean Winters. So it's uh, it's all over. Alvarez is another character I liked a lot. So yeah, kind of like Tony Soprano. There's definitely bad guys, but some bad guys with some good things that you can root for. Or at least some positive character traits within the mess. All right. Well, I'll, I'll probably check it out then. I got time right now in the age of quarantine. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will definitely be checking it out for Offhand, sure. Offhand, I, th- I think it's six episodes... I think it's six seasons, 60 episodes, something like that. I mean, I've got the DVDs of season one and two, but HBO Go uh, is the place certainly to check it out if you want to see Oz. One more review before we get to some news, our classic movies section, The Lady from Shanghai, which just aired on TCM Turner Classic Movies. A seaman becomes involved in a complex murder plot when he is hired to work on a yacht. He soon finds himself implicated in the murder despite his innocence. The film is best remembered for its climax hall of mirrors scene with a shootout amidst shards of shattering glass. And that is a tremendous epic finale. Lady from Shanghai, quite a troubled backstory. Uh, movie came out in 1947. It was shot in 1946, five years after Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, one of the greatest films of all time. But Orson Welles, quite the enfant terrible, had a real up and down, contentious relationship with Hollywood. The Magnificent Ambersons was savaged by the studio, was not released uh, the way that he wanted it to be, had trouble afterwards getting financing, the Lady Shanghai, in this case, the studio had did like him, gave him a $2 million budget, which was big, but immediately 
Wells took film noir and tried to make it even darker and darker in the studio very quickly, did not like what they were seeing. It's a convoluted plot. I myself was confused by it. I didn't feel as bad because afterwards the, the host on TCM said that even the studio had after saw it because he really pulled like a WTF. He said, what the hell was that? Can somebody explain that to me? So I felt better that I was not the only one confused. But that ending is amazing. It takes place in the Chinese area of San Francisco, House of Mirrors. Originally, it was a 10-minute sequence. You literally had the DP going like down the slide at one point. Like it's like subjective view. And it's so cool when Orson Welles would do a set piece like that. He cut it down from 10 minutes to four. I actually wish it was still 10 minutes. The movie's a very tidy 88 minutes. Could have been a little bit longer, I feel like, which is something I don't often say. Orson Welles is an Irish brogue in the movie, which I think his accent kind of dips in and out at times. But honestly, it's an enjoyable movie. As I mentioned to Joe before, I'm trying to fire through these De Palma movies. I'm actually racking up some good Orson Welles movies as well. The Stranger, which I previously reviewed. Now The Lady in Shanghai. I mean, he certainly was an incredible filmmaker. Certainly had his own vision and unique. And even though this is confusing and at times a bit of a mess, it's still very visually strong. And the star of the movie is Rita Hayworth. That's right. You're a fan of the Shawshank Redemption. You know the novella is called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And that when Andy Dufresne gets through to freedom, it's that Rita Hayworth poster that eventually the warden sees. He smashes through that great shot by Frank Darabont as you see the tunnel. Uh, Rita Hayworth, Orson Welles before he even met her, he said in print, one day I'm going to marry Rita Hayworth. And he did. But all good things come to an end. They end up getting divorced. And during the shooting of this film, they're already separated. And so you wonder what it was like for Wells directing his soon-to-be ex-wife. Everett Sloan is also in the film as Arthur Bannister. And the actor, by the way, Everett Sloan worked with Wells before. He is also in Citizen Kane. And he knew him from their RKO radio days. But one who's amazing is Glenn Andrews. He plays George Grisby. The way that Wells shoots him with these extreme close-ups, he's got this weird look on his face. Uh, him and Wells did not get along at all. And Wells just kept making him do take after take, which kept angering him. But I, I think it worked out for Orson Welles' sake because his performance is excellent. He just comes across as this creepy guy, and he's helped by those odd angles at the way that Wells shoots him to really kind of send along that sinister atmosphere. Jeffrey McNabb of Independent. The film is as tangled and ingenious as any of Welles' conjuring tricks. The shootout in the Hall of Mirrors is the most famous sequence, but there are other moments just as memorable. Mark Feeney of Boston Globe. The climax, a shootout in a funhouse full of mirrors, is one of the bravura sequences in all of film, a triumph of hey-look-at-me form over just-the-facts content. And Tom Hiddleston of Time Out, a magnificent mess of switchbacks and revelations, climaxing one of cinema's most outrageously inventive sequences. All right, the reviews are letting you know. The last uh, 10 minutes are certainly great, but trust me. I know Tom Jansen's a big fan of mine. Hopefully Tom Jansen's listening, one of Joe's friends. Hopefully he checks out the lady from Shanghai. Coming up next, Dave Merhedge, one of the stars of Rami, plus the Mount Rushmore Sports Docs Entertainment News is next. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Well, sad news here for our entertainment news as we continue. Carl Reiner, writer, producer, director, actor, part of Sid Caesar's legendary team and created the Dick Van Dyke Show, directed several hit films. He has died at the age of 98. 
died of natural causes at his home Monday night. Father of filmmaker and activist Rob Reiner, the winner of nine Emmy Awards, including five for The Dick Van Dyke Show. Most popular films as a director included Oh God, starring George Burns, The Jerk with Steve Martin, and All of Me with Martin and Lily Tomlin as well. He also remained in the public eye in the 80s and 90s. He was in the Ocean Eleven's movies, uh, Two and a Half Men, Hot in Cleveland, also did voice work for Family Guy, American Dad, King of the Hill, and Bob's Burgers. Authored several memoirs and novels, including a sequel to Enter Laughing called Continue Laughing, My Anecdotal Life, and I Remember Me. Uh, Ethan Kleinberg, my friend from MLB Network, noted when I mentioned the Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling, how much he loved Shanling. Well, I went back and I watched that four-hour and 15-minute documentary on Shanling, who I think is a genius, of course. And then I watched five episodes of the Larry Sanders Show last week. One of the episodes that I watched is called The Roast. And in that episode, the producer, Artie, goes to Carl Reiner. And he asked him to be the roast master for Gary Shandling's character of Larry Sanders. And that episode, by the way, the roast is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Bill Maher is on that episode. John Stewart. Uh, Al Franken. It's a real who's who of comedic stars. Jerry Seinfeld's in the episode. Uh, David Paymer. Uh, sorry, Seinfeld's not in that one. David Paymer's in that one. So check out the roast. Uh, so I was hit by this news specifically because literally I, I, two days ago, I was just watching Carl Reiner in my favorite show of all time, The Larry Sanders Show. And as I mentioned, I'm sure a lot of us have seen those Ocean's Eleven movies. A giant of comedy. Rest in peace. 98 years. A good run, Joe. Yeah, and his influence just over comedy and, and working with some of the funniest people to ever ever live is a real testament to his career. But The Jerk, I don't know about you, Adnan, that still to me has to be, that's top three funniest movie all time that I've ever seen. So he'll be missed. Yeah, I got to go see that again because, you know, I was born a poor black child. <laughs> Steve Martin, so good. Um, so I was hoping, listen, we go back to the movies in July, right? This whole time I kept thinking, hey, July, we're going to get back to the theaters. Well, folks, looking more like August. Although Garden State Plaza, my local mall, which I went to yesterday, opened yesterday. I said, hey, when's the movie theater opening up? The guy said, well, we're hoping July 15th. But you know what? If it's opening July 15th, they're going to show a bunch of old movies because the whole thought was Mulan's coming, Tenet's coming. Here's your update. Warner's Brothers again, Warner Brothers, excuse me, again pushing back Tenant. $200 million it cost. I just read an article on it, by the way, Entertainment Weekly. Amazing article. Check it out. Uh, it was shot in seven countries. Like, nobody does it, Christopher Nolan. A, a, very little CGI. There's one sequence he didn't want to do with CGI. Guy literally bought a fighter pilot, blew the fighter pilot up. He's like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. I mean, this is like Last of the Mohican style in terms of big budget movies. Was supposed to arrive July 17th. Postponed to July 31st. Now it's August 12th. They've also delayed the re-release of Nolan's sci-fi blockbuster Inception in honor of its 10th anniversary to July 31st. I said, well, it's okay. I'll go back and see Mulan in July. No, Mulan has been pushed back for a third time. Scheduled to debut in theaters July 24th. Now it's going to hit the big screen August 21st. So those are the two big movies were supposed to come in July. They're now going to come out in August. And some other news to pass along. Colin Kaepernick's formative years becoming a Netflix series. That's right. The NFL quarterback, athlete, activist, teaming up with Ava DuVernay for Colin in black and white. A scripted, limited drama been picked up straight to series at the streaming giant of Netflix. Six-episode series will examine Kaepernick's adolescent life, his high school years, the acts and experiences, to when, of course, he took a knee and decided to take a stand. Emmy nominee Michael Starbury will pen the script, serve as executive producer. Uh, Starbury privacy team with DuVernay on When They See Us, which was a Peabody winning limited series based on the Central Park Five. Colin Kaepernick not going anywhere, and now, Joe, he gets a great filmmaker to tell his story. 
Oh yeah, and Ava DuVernay, her her whole catalog is incredible. I'm super interested to see what she'll do with his early life, and and I wonder how much of his influence will go into that. I'm sure a lot, but uh, you know, we were talking about the Last Dance and Michael Jordan and the influence he had on that. So yeah, I'm excited to watch it when it comes out. All right, look forward to that. Now it's time for our special guest. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, as I've discussed here in Cinefile, I'm a huge fan of the show, Rami. Seasons 1 and 2 are streaming now on Hulu, and a big part of that show's success is Dave Merhedge. He is one of the best stand-ups going right now. His 2018 comedy special is called Good Friend, Bad Grammar, available on iTunes and Amazon Prime, and he's a fellow Canadian, which of course led to me having him here on the show. Dave also just moved from New York to Los Angeles, so I'm sure there's lots of stories there because nobody wants to move, and nobody wants to move during COVID-19. Dave Merhedge joins us now on Cinephile. Dave, thanks so much for the time, man. How are we doing? No, thank you for having me, man. Thank you for uh, asking me to be a part of this, to come on and chat with you. Of course. Let's start with Rami. Uh, When Brendan Dunlop, our friend from Windsor, texts me and he says, I don't know if you watch Rami. I said, are you kidding? I'm Muslim. It's it's the first Muslim comedy show ever. Of course I'm watching. I love Rami. It's great. And he says, oh, I know Dave. He's a friend of mine from Windsor. You want to have minds? Of course. And he said, just so you know, he's Lebanese Christian. So let's start there. Lebanese Christian playing the most devout Muslim on the show. You are the friend of Rami (laughs) Yusuf's character. Did you have to do like Islam one-on-one here for for the role? Nah, well, I had a good guidance from Rami and Mo Ammer and uh, some other individuals that, um, uh, May as well, the, who plays the sister. So any kind of questions I had or anything I needed, they steered me in the right direction and, and helped me out so much. Like pronouncing certain words. Yeah, it was very, very, they were very, very helpful. Yeah, you were completely authentic. Like, I would never think for a second this guy is not familiar, like you said, Balahi or Alhamdulillah, whatever terms that you're saying. The character himself is so funny, and I imagine he's completely unlike you because he's like such a, I don't want to say nervous Nelly, but, you know, he obviously he's on the straight arrow. He's devout. He doesn't want Rami to mess up. He's a very careful guy. He does things by the book. Uh, I imagine this is fun for you to kind of play out of who you are as a person. Yeah, because I don't really, like, go by the books as much as that, um and also, like, there's parts of, like, the nervousness and the anxiety. That I, have, I have aspects of that 100% in my real life. So able to, I was able to draw from those, which I enjoyed, of course. I enjoyed the whole, the whole thing, just playing the, this, the, uh, this character. I enjoyed it, you know, just so that I can get better at acting as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, the more you train and the more you put yourself in a position where it's different from who you are is always helpful acting-wise. Well, what I love about the show, along with my personal attachment to the subject matter, but I think it's rather brave of Rami, is that even though the show is about him, ostensibly, the, the show title is after him. He co-writes a lot of the shows. He's obviously executive producing, et cetera. Some of the best shows are about the other characters, like the episode you know, about his uncle, the episode of his mom, the uncle about his sister. And your best episode is episode seven in which the guys go to a strip club. I, I just, the, the degree of difficulty here, I, I, it's like, I don't know how you guys pulled it off, 
it, it, <laughs> you go from going to a strip club and Rami doesn't want to really be a part of it, but he's being coaxed along by Mo and you're going along just because, you know, it's your buddies. And, okay, we got to do this. But later on, they're literally doing a VR, like virtual reality of Hajj. For those who are unaware of the, the spiritual pilgrimage, religious pilgrimage that all Muslims are doing. Like to be like, that is truly, Dave, the melding of the sacred and the profane. You go from a strip club to VR for the Hajj. Like what was your reaction even when you read that, that episode? Oh, well, it was, uh, my reaction is like, this would be very cool to film. Like, you know what I mean? Just like, I, it was just seemed so, it was like well-written and just, just being, being able to, like, I love acting with everyone, but just, uh, I knew like me and Mo were going to get to be in this scene together like that. And we had so much fun then, like filming it. It was, it was just a, it was such a fun time that I'm, yeah, that night was so fun filming it. But, uh, yeah, it is like, you know, like Steve and Mo are like kind of coaching them into going to the strip joint. I'm just kind of tagging along. So it is such a, a wild difference from going in, in that, from a strip joint vibe to praying Hajj, virtual, virtual Amra. Like the whole thing is just such a funny, it's just so funny, man. Just, yeah, I'm assuming you've watched, so oh, yeah. the scenes play out so hilarious. Oh, it was hilarious. The degree of difficulty in that episode is very high. And that's sometimes I go with that with comedy, right? I think easy joke, okay, you get a laugh, fine. But if it's the degree of difficulty is higher, I give it more appreciation for the humor because there's so many times in Rami, the joke is like cringeworthy, right? But it's the kind of humor. I mean, listen, if you like Kirby enthusiasm, if you like edgy humor, it's going to fit. Even one scene where Moe's talking to the guy who Rami brings into the fold in episode two, and he says Muslim, and he goes, you know, it's Muslim. You know, it's a soft S. It's like pussy. And you get the guy saying pussy, Muslim, pussy, Muslim. Like, it's it's just funny the way, oh, yeah. you, right? Like, it's, just, it's a really original way of doing it. It's funny. Dude, that actor is awesome. That's Jared. His, his, his name is Jared. He's from Canada originally. Nice. A fellow Canadian. I love it. Yeah. We met, like, actually, when we, we got picked up, like, uh, separately, but we were in the same van going to set. And when I opened the door, he's like, he, he was like, yo, man, uh, dude, you're Canadian, too. You're from Winnipeg? And I go, Winnipeg? He goes, yeah, Rami said you're from Winnipeg. I go, no, Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Winnipeg? <laughs> I was like for Canadians, I'm like, nah, man. Like I was, I made it sound like, oh, yo, I'm never living in Winnipeg, dude. Windsor, like just the, the way I responded, I was like, nah, not even, yeah. And we had like a good time. We like we were able to chat and get to know each other a bit on that ride to set. And he's such a good dude. He's such a he's such a dope actor as well. So I think he, I think he 100% nailed it. No question at all. How did you first get the role, Dave? Because I don't know if you realized at the time the show would become popular, become a cult hit, would win a Golden Globe. How was it for you when you first got the role? How would that process come about? Um, I knew Rami for like 10 years. Like I've known him for a while. We did an um, a Arab comedy festival in New York in 2010. And then we kind of uh, stayed in contact. And when I moved to L.A. in 2015, we got closer and hang out more and chat more. So he was telling me about the project. And um, he's like, you want to audition? I was like, for sure. And then I did a self-tape. But I was in China when I had to do the self-tape. I didn't have a reader, so they turned it into, like, a monologue. So I get to Beijing, and um, the the promoter picked me up from the airport to drive me back to the, to the hotel. So she was like, I'm going to come back and get you if you want to eat. I said, sure. But when she came back, I, had to, I needed someone to help me record this. So I was trying to explain to her what this show was in the elevator and what the process of which she had probably no clue what I was saying. So then we get in the hotel room, she records me, and I'm like, was that good? And she lowered the phone, and she goes, no, nah, do it again. So I was like, oh, man. And then I did it again, and then she was okay with that take. And then um, uh, the next day, I was in Singapore, and I found out I got the pilot. So I texted her. We had, like, a chat. 
I think it was like a group chat, and I was like, hey, we got the role. So I thought that was like, you know, she was. I thank her for for being there for recording me. No question. And I love the honesty, by the way. Like, think how many people in your life would lie to you. Like, yeah, okay, we're good. The fact that she actually said, nah, do one more. Oh, well, that is certainly upsetting, I'm sure, on some level. Listen, she wanted you to get your best. I like no, the fact there was honesty. Yeah. I think she had no ties to it, right? She had no, like, she had no, she didn't know me that well. So she had no, like, no uh, connection to how I would feel emotionally about it. You know what I mean? She was probably looking at it like, look, this, that, to me, this didn't come out good. Why don't you do it again? Like, you know, she wasn't really, her intentions probably weren't to hurt my feelings. It's just, you know, and I was just like, I guess she's right. Like, I don't even know why I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah let's do it again. So I guess she uh, knew better than me at that moment. But, yeah, I'm thankful. And, and has that opened up other things? We'll get into the comedy in just a second. But being on Rami, do you get a sense of the popularity of it? Like, I know it's hard right now. I find for anybody in your shoes, any sort of content creator, actor, et cetera, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. It's the best of times because people want content. There's so many different avenues, the conventional channels, streaming services, et cetera. At the same time, though, there's so much out there. It's oversaturated. It's hard to, to kind of pull through. When did you get a sense of, you know what, people are watching Rami. This seems to have connected more than other shows. Um, just from the messages people would send and, and seeing people in the streets, especially in New York, um, even in Windsor, when I went back to my hometown after a show, we went to a local bar and uh, I was on my way, my cousins and everyone were on the patio. And then these guys, like group of guys from like the table over were like, you, uh, you're on Rami. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, we watch. And that was Windsor. So it was, I don't even think it was really out, out in Canada um from from my knowledge so i knew that people were like watching it from from the feedback and i i, I just was like proud to be a part of a dope project to be honest when i got to work with, i get to work with my friends which is like amazing like do you know what i mean like there's a lot of laughs a lot of good times on set no question about it by the way windsor a lot of great things at a windsor i love the tea party which is a canadian reference i think they're a great band yeah of course tea party um, Richie, uh, Richie Hine, I believe for, uh, that, uh, he's electronic DJ. Um, Tamia, I think Tamia's from Windsor, yes. R&B singer. Def definitely an underrated spot there in Ontario, very close to Detroit. Good friend, bad grammar was your comedy special available on iTunes, Amazon prime won the 2019 Juno award for comedy album of the year. Obviously comedy is something that you're passionate about. Something you've been successful with. Is it, again, I go back to best of times, worst of times. I feel like for comedians, it's like, all right, there's more avenues now. I was watching Judd Apatow's documentary. I, well, it's the second time I've seen it because I love Gary Shandling, the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And they're talking about when you could get on The Tonight Show, right? How that just made your career. If you could get on The Tonight Show and you killed, then you were good. And it's like, you know, Shandling killed and Drew Carey, whoever was the actor at that time. So for you now, it's like, all right, back in the day, you'd be like, oh, okay, if I can get on Letterman, if I can get on... Whatever show, I'm going to feel good. And I'm sure those, those roles still exist and those platforms exist. But for comedy now, do you find it more challenging? Because again, there's so much out there. Or are you like, hey, dude, I've done Toronto. I've done Winnipeg. I've done Halifax. I've done the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in Australia. I don't care where it is. As long as I'm doing comedy, I'm good. Um, I, think, I think it's good and bad. I think in a sense that there's more stuff out there streaming-wise for you to get your content out. And that's always a victory. You know, is there necessarily like the Tonight Show now where you do it and your career pops off? I don't know. It does probably for some, you know, um, may, you know, it really depends. I've known people that they did a late night and it really guided their career and other and others. Not that it didn't guide their career, but for some it had a much more impact. Uh, now there's other things like HBO, Netflix, 
Um, but there's a lot of more avenues to go down. And when, I think that's always, that's always great for any t- stand-up, that you have more options to kind of like grow and, and get on. Um, for me, I enjoyed all those things, and I still do. Like, Just for Laughs has helped me so much. I owe them a lot since 2011 is when the first time I went. And uh, I was able to win the Homegrown Award. And ever since then, they've been super, super, fun, super awesome to me, giving me the opportunity. So all that stuff means a lot still. Like even going to Melbourne, like I'm, I started comedy in Windsor, like open mics. And then I'm, you know, I'm getting, getting to go to China and Australia. You know, anytime that happens, I'm, I'm always uh, grateful for that. Yeah, one of the many downsides here at COVID-19 is, of course, live comedy. And uh, I was watching Bill Burr was talking, I think, to Jimmy Kimmel. And he said, you know, at first he was good. He's like, you know what? I don't need to play every club. Like, I'll take a little break. It's fine. But now you really get to miss it. And that, that juice you get at a live comedy club, like, I think it's the best. I mean, I, I, like anybody, I go to L.A. and I want to go to see the comedy clubs there. Back in Toronto, like you mentioned, I'll go to Just for Laughs or, um, you know, Yuck Yucks, whatever it is. Like, it's... How, how are you doing with the fact that I'm sure you're writing material and you're honing your craft, but you can't do it before a live audience the way you would normally? Uh, at first, it wasn't even... At first, I was like trying to process everything. I didn't really do much writing, to be honest with you, um, like stand-up-wise. Even now, I've, I've had some ideas and had some thoughts, but it's not as intense. Um, I do miss it. You know, at first, I was like, oh, man, I, I personally uh, needed kind of a little break because I was going pretty hard uh, since the summer like touring around Canada and, 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 and coming to the U S. So at first I was like, Oh, this is a great, like kind of break. I can rejuvenate, um, and think things through, but now I miss it a hundred percent. Now I've, I've like kind of like reached out some and put out some feelers on certain clubs. I found out open to try to go out there and headline. Cause I want to get back in it. I can imagine hopefully sooner rather than later, social distance, wearing masks. I mean, whatever, whatever it's going to take. You're also a cast member on Mr. D on CBC. I, of course, worked with Jerry D when I was at the yeah. score. Me and Cabby and Sid and Tim, all the rest of us. My favorite Jerry D story is this. Great guy. And I remember he was very humble, down, or a yeah. funny guy, but great dude. We're at a Blue Jays game, and I'm obviously there covering the game. Jerry's just there doing his bits. But we're sitting together. <laughs> Foul ball comes up. Jerry D catches it barehanded. And like, we both lost our minds. Like, I, I've never sat next to a guy who's caught a foul ball barehanded. Like, we were in mid-conversation, ball gets it, nails it. And afterwards, the entire press box is looking at us like we're a couple of buffoons. Like, why are these losers celebrating so raucously? And Jerry looks at me and he goes, look at this. Like, all these guys are so bitter, bunch of old bastards. They, they, they wish they could catch a fly ball. And you and me are calling nuts because that's what baseball's all about. That's what life should be all about. Uh, he's always been very down to earth. And I'm, I'm thrilled by success yeah tell me about mr d and working with jerry uh jerry you know he he uh yeah i owe a lot to jerry too because i hadn't really done a, a canadian or a sitcom in general he gave me my first chance um and those two summers I, I were amazing i got to spend more time in halifax which i i love now i fell in love with, with the city um he's super funny man it was like I, I a lot of times i was like trying not to crack on camera when we would go back and forth or when he was you know, doing his lines, I just find him so, so funny, man. His stand-up's uh, super funny, but um, working with him acting-wise was, was, I had a blast, man. We, I just had so much, uh, so much fun. I learned a lot, um, and yeah, he gave me that opportunity, and forever I'm, I'm appreciative of it. Last one for you, because Canadians, we all stick together. I was uh, talking to my buddy Cabby. He's like, yep, I know Dave as well. And as I mentioned, Brendan uh, linked us too. Canadians always root for each other. Canadians always pull for each other. And generally speaking, Canadians are pretty funny. 
Can you reach into the deep recesses of the mind and figure out psychologically, whether it's Jim Carrey, whether it's Phil Hartman, whether it's Martin Short, whether it's Dan Aykroyd, whether it's John Candy, whether it's all Mike Myers, why are Canadians so funny? I don't really know necessarily exactly, obviously, why they're super funny. I guess, I don't know, you know, if, you know, we're kind of, you know, we look at, I don't know, because you're next to America maybe, and you're kind of like, you, you know, when somebody goes for it at first and you can step back and like analyze and like, why would they do that? Like, I, you know, I think we watched, not watch them purposely, but like they do some wild shit and we're like looking at them, like, you know, being able to observe and, and draw humor from it. I think maybe, I don't, you know, I grew up in Windsor, you know, my family for most of it, my dad is like funny, even though he's not trying to be, my mom tells stories, my brothers and uh, sister are funny. Like, you know, in a sense that we like, we like, to tell stories and make each other laugh. So for me, I, you know, that's where I drew most of my humor where I can draw it from. But as Canadians, yeah, we have a, we have a super talented, man, we're so funny, dude. Like there's so many people, whether they say they're Canadian or not, like to the entertainment world, we have, there's a lot of funny top Canadian comedians, Russell Peters, like there's so many. Men. I was about to say, I feel like I'm shortchanging so many. You're right. Russell Peters, obviously is a great stand-up. I mean, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy. I mean, you, you name whatever era and they're always awfully very funny. Last one for you. You just moved from New York to Los Angeles. Moving sucks. We all know that. Moving during COVID must've been a different animal. What was that process like? Uh, just a lot of planning. We just, you know, like, uh, another friend of mine, uh, my, uh, Good friend of mine who I who who I co who co-hosts a podcast with me, he uh, he moved as well. So we kind of like planned it out. We did like in a month in advance. So we had we had our planning. We knew it was going to be a little bit different from normal. So there was a there was I would just say we had we really planned it. Helped us out by planning and being responsible. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm sure it's not easy for anybody, but you grind through, you get through it. You follow him on Twitter, Dave Merhedge. Once again, D-A-V-E-M-E-H-E-R-J-E. -E -E. Good friend, bad grammar. Available on iTunes, Amazon Prime. That is the comedy special. Also, your most recent comedy special, Beautifully Manic, can be seen on Netflix as part of Comedians of the World. And Rami, seasons one and two, streaming now on Hulu. Mr. D, much other work along the way. Dave, I can't thank you enough, man. I know you're awfully busy right now, but I love the show. And now that I know you're Canadian, I will do my best to support your work always. Thanks so much, brother. Dude, man, no, thank you, bro. Thank you for, for, for chatting with me, man. Very appreciative. Mount Rushmore. All right, thanks so much again to Dave Merhedge. God, he was funny. Uh, how about the Mount Rushmore sports documentaries in honor of Athlete A? There's lots of great ones here to look forward to. Uh, and listen, with sports and documentaries, you're looking at athletes, looking at them in a certain manner and trying to find certain aspects of their personality and why sports can be a respite for them. Lots of great choices. I'll kick it off with Ken Burns' Baseball. Ten parts, and it's exhaustive, informative, engrossing. Particularly, I was just asked by my employers at MLB Network to tip my cap in honor of the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. That's literally the best endorsement I can give to Ken Burns' baseball. The stories he tells about the Negro Leagues is stuff you wouldn't find anywhere else. And the best part of the entire documentary is Buck O'Neill, who is an incredible raconteur. 
and his enthusiasm when he tells stories about Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Double Duty Radcliffe, all those great Negro League stars. It's a must-watch. The thing about Ken Burns is like he focuses so much on the early origins of baseball. Like literally part nine is when you get to the 60s. You're like, oh my God. So like he's going dead ball era. And every episode will somehow include Jackie Robinson or Babe Ruth. Like he has all the giants there. Uh, but the storytelling is amazing. And as I said, if you're really interested in the history of baseball, you know, the 1900s, 1920s, I thought the 1940s, I believe that's chapter six was amazing because that's about, you know, New York baseball and what it was like having three teams and, you know, Williams and DiMaggio and all the rest of it. So it's a, I love Ken Burns' baseball. Obviously, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm also going to include Hoop Dreams, which for me is quite possibly the greatest basketball movie ever. Arthur Agee, William Gates, uh, their story of trying to rise to the top, overcoming poverty and familial issues in Chicago was an absolute crime that was not nominated for Best Documentary, but it should have been. came out in 1994, Steve James. As good a documentary as you'll ever see, Hoop Dreams is on my list as well. Murderball is one that I would love to watch again. Um, 15th anniversary of that, about literally paraplegics, guys in wheelchairs who take out their rage by playing something called Murderball. Uh, it's aggressive. It's innovative. It's got a great soundtrack, ton of heavy metal on that. Murderball is a documentary I haven't seen in a long time. I'd love to watch it again because I just thought it was so powerful. And the last one I'm going to go with, When We Were Kings. Leon Gast did an amazing job telling Muhammad Ali's story, specifically with the Rumble in the Jungle. Ali. Beaumaye, and the way he was able to just kind of galvanize the entire country, the entire continent of Africa, the entire world was cheering for Ali as he beats George Foreman playing very famously a little bit of rope-a-dope. Honorable mention to OJ Made in America, which is, I mean, it is about a sports figure, but I feel like it's so much more bigger than that. But yes, that would technically qualify as a sports documentary. But I'm going to go with baseball, hoop dreams, murder ball, and When We Were Kings, lots of other great ones out there as well. Uh, the Battered Bastards of Baseball, Senna, Pumping Iron. Joe, what do you got? Well, first, I will agree with you on Ken Burns' baseball and just how thorough it is. And, you know, for someone like me, I didn't, I didn't watch Babe Ruth play, but he does such a good job at explaining the exact impact, the HD-DC effect that Babe Ruth had on the game. And then he does these little things where he'll start out an episode and he'll say, you know, uh, Joe DiMaggio died, but in this month, this great Hall of Fame player was born just to like show how the game, you know, just keeps going. So I'll do baseball for sure. And then I'm going to pick Beyond the Mat, uh, the WWE documentary showing the uh, underbelly of the WWE and how it has just taken down wrestlers' lives um, and their commitment to Vince McMahon. I'm also going to do out of complete recency bias, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan doc, the Chicago Bulls, and and I was at a wedding last week and I was talking to these uh, teenagers, you know, 14, 15 years old. They weren't alive for Michael Jordan and I asked them what they got out of it. They had watched the entire thing, uh, really, really enjoyed it. And they were telling me that Michael Jordan is on social media all the time. There's always the Jordan-LeBron debate. They're always posting highlights of him. And so for them, much like you know, with me and and Babe Ruth with baseball, for them it was a way to get context to just how great Michael Jordan was. And then my last one will be June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four. It's the thirty for thirty doc that follows um, O.J. Simpson's Bronco chase on June seventeenth, nineteen ninety four, and and the context of it 
and what was happening in sports that day. The Rangers were in the Stanley Cup, the Knicks were in the playoffs, and how all of that impacted came together. And uh, I think it's also just a good documentary for right now to understand, you know, racial tensions at that time, specifically in LA. So I love that. I will do June 17th, 1994, Baseball, Beyond the Mat, and The Last Dance. Love the inclusion of Beyond the Mat. Uh, Dan Skip Allen often uh, listens. He messaged me. He said, listen, uh, in The Wrestler, which I loved and talked about recently in Total Recall, the Mickey Rourke character based on Jake the Snake Roberts. And when you see what those guys go through, I'm sure Aronofsky used a lot of that material when he was writing The Wrestler. The last dance, as I said, my issue with it was it was a hagiography. I mean, Jordan co-produced it. Uh, but you're right. In terms of pure entertainment, especially if you're a Jordan fan, it's certainly very nostalgic, uh, outstanding soundtrack, some great 90s hip-hop on that soundtrack. And it really shows you what, what goes to, to the, the beat of Jordan's drum. I don't think he's a very likable person, but I will say he's very authentic. He, he does not suffer fools gladly. He's very honest about himself. He will rip Clyde Drexler and Isaiah Thomas will have a grudge until they die. So that's uh, he's certainly an authentic person. And you're right, Joe. It does offer a window for younger people. I mean, if you're in your 20s, you're like, well, why is everyone talking about this guy so much? It gives you that aspect. And, I, and thank you for mentioning that about baseball. That's what I remember. Like every episode, he somehow would mention Jackie Robinson because you're right. It was like, oh, Jackie was born this day. He did this, this day. Okay, we're not going to focus on him in this decade, but oh, he ran track in this decade we'll get to his baseball really on it it was a very smart technique to make sure the greats were always mentioned you're right even the funeral ty cobb's funeral i remember very vividly he shows you know later on and it's a, it allows you to call back to the memories which you've already seen the knowledge you've already gained by the way ken burns is on um my man Scott Feinberg, Hollywood Reporter podcast. I haven't listened to it yet. He did a documentary about country music, which I'm not a fan of, but it came out last year. So I was actually listening to Ken Burns, a very interesting guy. A troubled background. I didn't realize his mom passed away when he was 12. His dad was a very absentee father. Um, well, I shouldn't say absentee. He was a negligent father. He was there. He wasn't particularly a good father. But Ken Burns says that was kind of challenging for him. He didn't have much of a childhood. So he's a, obviously a fascinating guy. If you have the time, check out uh, Scott Feinberg's interview with Ken Burns on The Hollywood Reporter. All right, now it's time as we always close up shop here, Total Recall. Uh, we got four more to go. 2019 Oscars. These are the films from 2018. Best picture was Green Book. What else was nominated, Joe? Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. I remember when A Star is Born came out, I said, well, that's going to win Best Picture because the reviews were huge. You've got very likable stars. For years, the Oscars have problems with uh, movies winning that not everybody has seen. I said, well, A Star Born is a big, glossy remake. $100 million it's going to make. You got freaking Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. Like, there you go. So I was very happy when it didn't win Best Picture because I liked it, but I did not love it. And it's not a film that I would feel like rewatching anytime soon. I thought Roma was awfully sleep-inducing. And I say that here in my office. I actually have a big poster of Roma, which uh, they sent me. Because as, as you know, I'm a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association. So they sent us stuff. So I actually have a Roma pillow, <laughs> which I can go to sleep to when I want to watch the movie. <laughs> and I actually have a Roma. It's actually signed by Alfonso Cuaron. It's a pretty cool uh, cool thing I have here in the Verk Museum, as I'm looking at it right now. Even though I didn't like the movie, I like the poster. It's a very cool poster. And it is signed by Alfonso Cuaron. So hopefully I'll get a few bucks for it one day. Uh, Vice, I, I liked a lot. Listen, Ben Lyons, he had Vice as his best picture of the year. It's great. The favorite, it's just not a film that I normally would watch. Costume drama is very inventive and absurdly funny. Bohemian Rhapsody, I thought was a very average uh, biopic. 
Black Panther, again, I'm not big on the Marvel movies, but I understand why it was different and certainly of the time and, and nice to see racial inclusion when it comes to superheroes. My pick would be Black Klansman. I love that Spike Lee film. It was a real return to prominence for him. Would have been nice to see one of his movies win Best Picture. But I'll say this for Green Book, which the woke generation really criticized and said it was like this revisionist look at race relations and, oh, okay, yeah, white guy, black guy, get along again. They do this big road trip. But, I mean, Octavia Spencer was involved with it. And she was saying, listen, not every story about race has to be angry and uh, polemic. There can be sweet, heartwarming stories. And I liked it a lot for the reason that I felt like I could watch this with my mom. Like, she would, she would like this kind of movie. And it certainly appealed to older uh, voters. I know the younger people are more angry with the win. And I don't think a lot of people actually had it as their best picture, but it was rewarded by the preferential voting system where you rank your film one to nine. So a lot of people did not have Green Book as number one, but A Star is Born may have been one, but other people hated it. Like some Academy people hated them. We've had it at number eight. Roma, for me, love it or hate it. Vice is very much a polarizing film. So Green Book actually won because it was a lot of people's number three, number four, and you add up enough of those, you end up being best picture. I think it's got great performances. Viggo Mortensen and uh, Mahershala Ali won an Academy Award. Good script. Peter Farrelly. I mean, God, if you love the Farrelly brothers, I was so happy to see him be rewarded after all the great comedies he's given us. Like, there's something about Mary and Dumb and Dumber. So I actually quite like Green Book, but I would have voted for Black Klansman. Joe? I'm going to agree with you, and I'm going to pick Black, Black Klansman as well. Um, that That's more of a lifetime achievement award for Spike, though I did really, really enjoy the movie. But I'm, I'm looking at it, and the one glaring uh, movie on here is Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm just wondering how that got nominated. Oh. I know it was super popular, but as a Queen fan, I just really thought it was the definition of mediocrity when it came out. Couldn't agree with you more, and I will bash it further when we get to Best Actor. Best Director was Alfonso Coron for Roma. Who else was nominated? Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Powell Polakowski, Cold War, Yorgos Lathamos, The Favorite, and Adam and Kay for Vice. I like the nomination for Lanthimos because The Favorite is very inventive. I mean, that slow motion sequence where they're tossing oranges at naked guys, I still don't understand what the hell was going on, but God, that movie's funny. They got rabbits in there, Olivia Colman. I mean, what a strange movie. I loved Adam McKay's direction of Vice, particularly the scene 30 minutes in. I don't think I laughed harder than any movie when they had the fake crawl come up. Like Dick Cheney retired to go look after his daughters, and there's like slow motion of him and his Labrador. I mean, it really funny the way they did that. Polakovsky, Cold War did great on the uh, film festival circuit. I'm surprised it got nominated. I remember I saw it. It was a little dry for my taste. I didn't find it as involving as others, but hey, good to see a, a Polish director get nominated. I mean, years from now, they'll be like, hey, who else got nominated? No one will remember that movie. Roma certainly from Carl's heart, and I appreciate that. He's telling an immigrant story. It was very timely uh, with the way that a lot of Mexican immigrants being de demonized by Trump, et cetera. But I just can't get behind the win. I would go with Spike, as Joe just said in reference to Best Picture. For me, it would have been a Career Achievement Award. But still, I think it's a strong movie in its own right, and I would love to have seen Spike Lee finally win a Best Director Oscar, which has eluded him. Yeah, I agree. I I personally am going to go with Alfonso Cuaron because he didn't get it for Children of Men. And, or Itumama Tambien, which I think is just the most beautiful movie ever. But yes, I, I agree. Spike Lee, I, I really, really enjoyed Black Klansman, but I'll go with Roma. Nice. All right, best actor. Horrific win for Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury. Who else won? Christian Bale for Vice. Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born. Willem Dafoe, At Eternity's Gate. And Viggo Mortensen, Green Book. Loved at Attorney's Gate. Saw it with my girl, Claire Atkins. We were covering the national championship for college football in San Jose. We saw this cute little theater in Palo Alto. And I mean, I love Willem Dafoe. Go ahead and listen to the interview I had with him on Cinephile. That guy's the best. And um, 
Bengo's whole life is interesting, right? I mean, the guy had literally no success in his life, was consistently changing his careers, uh, was ridiculed when he was trying to draw as a young man, tried to be a pastor, suffered from mental illness, you know, cut off his ear. At 34, he starts painting. He's incredible, but no one knows it. Doesn't sell anything. Died at 37, but a few months before he died, he did get some recognition. There was those in the art circles that said, look what this guy's doing. This is revolutionary. This is amazing. However... He, of course, didn't get any money. Years now, I just read this article the other day, there's like four of Van Gogh's paintings. If you adjust them for inflation, $100 million each. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and Defoe, by the way, in, as Van Gogh, completely disappears in the role. He's an incredible actor. I wish more people had seen the movie. Julian Schnabel directed it, who is an acclaimed painter himself, also did Basquiat. So that's a long way of saying, I love Willem Defoe. That's my long way of saying that. I would have loved to see him win. Uh, Vigo, very good in Green Book. God, the guy puts on a ton of money. You know, he's, he's, it's a hard role, right? He's the racist guy who has to come around on this black guy who's driving around who tells him what to do. It's a little broad, certainly, as an Italian caricature. I could definitely see that criticism, but I like him a lot as an actor. Again, previously on Cinefy, I can check out that interview. Bradley Cooper, again, A Star is Born, I liked it, didn't love it, but I will say his performance, tremendous. I mean, God, he sounds like Sam Elliott. There's no doubt that he took a lot of effort with the role, the beard, the look. I mean, the scene where he, you know, he tells his brother that he wanted to be like him and Sam Elliott pulls away teary-eyed. It is a really sweet scene. There's no denying he's got great chemistry with Lady Gaga and his singing is impressive. So I, I wouldn't have had an issue with Bradley Cooper winning. Bale, I love his Dick Cheney, the way he's chewing on his cud and the way he's just, I mean, his face is all contorted. I mean, I, I honestly, I have no issue with any of these guys winning. I would go with Defoe because not enough people saw the movie and he's never won a Best Actor Oscar. Uh, but Rami Malek winning was an absolute travesty. He's a good actor. I haven't seen iRobot. I know people rave about it. But as Joe mentions, a Queen fan, this is like a sanitized Queen version. Like none of the sex and drugs and rock and roll. Like we're just going to tell a tainted version of this guy's story. I thought it was so thoroughly mediocre, so average. I, I was incredulous that it was not for Best Picture. And he's a good actor and does a good job. That doesn't mean you should win an Oscar. If you want to get nominated, okay, maybe. But I thought it was absurd that he won. I, I mean, I, literally, I was appalled. I thought Bale should win, Cooper should win, Defoe should win, Vigo should win. It was the worst nominee of the five. Yeah, I threw up in my mouth a little bit when he won. I mean, he, he was very, very good, but he I think they gave him the Oscar just because he looks like Freddie Mercury, honestly. And those teeth, those fake teeth really got to me. People listening, Live Aid, the phones didn't get, start ringing off the hook when Queen came up. It's not like they saved Live Aid. You know, uh, we were talking about Michael Jordan, his influence on the Last Dance documentary, the amount of influence that Queen had on this documentary so that Brian May is viewed in the best light and that wasn't necessarily him and Freddie Mercury's relationship. I didn't like it. Point is, I, I haven't seen At Eternity's Gate. I'm going to check that out, but I'll go with Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born. Yeah, you know what? No issue with that. He literally, that guy put his heart into that movie. He did not get nominated for directing. He got snubbed there by Polakovsky. And he said publicly he thought he was a failure. I'm like, dude, it's the first movie you directed. Like, settle down, right? You got to work for these things. Um, but as a performance, I agree. I just thought the movie, I got the scene where he's peeing himself on stage, I go, come on, this is ridiculous. Uh, best actress, Olivia Coleman for The Favorite. Who else was nominated? Yalitza Aparicio for Roma, Glenn Close for The Wife. Lady Gaga for Star is Born, and Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Always good when the Oscars, a big shocking moment. Glenn Close was supposed to win. Seventh nomination, had never won. This is her time, and then boom. Should have known. British actresses, man. They love the Brits, the Oscars. Boom, Olivia Coleman shows up. 
Uh, I got no issue with this one. She was great. She's really funny in the movie as Queen Anne. It's a literate movie. It's sharp. It's smart. And her performance is certainly unforgettable. I mean, that stuff with the rabbits. and I mean, she's got the girl going down on her. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. I, I support that. Although I did like Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? I know Joe wasn't as big on the movie. I liked her performance because it was against type. A comedian playing this cat lady who is uh, very unlikable. Lady Gaga certainly struts her stuff. And uh, the problem with Glenn Close, I mean, listen, she's a good actress. The movie was pretty average. So, you know, that's Career Achievement Award 101. And the Oscars to the credits said, no, we're not going to do it. Olivia Coleman gives a better performance. Yelitsa Aparicio, uh, certainly a nice performance as Roma in uh, Cleo Gutierrez. But I'll agree with the Academy on this one. Uh, me too. I'm going to agree with the Academy. I love Olivia Coleman. Really, really love the old uh, British comedy show Peep Show, which she's featured in. And you're right, I didn't really like uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me. I liked Melissa McCarthy in it, but the movie all around I just didn't uh, agree with. So I'll go with Olivia Coleman for the favorite. All right, Best Supporting Actor, Marisha Lee won for Green Book is Don Shirley. Who else is nominated? Adam Driver for Black Klansman, Sam Elliott, A Star is Born, Richard E. Grant, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Sam Rockwell, Vice. I'll agree with the Academy. I thought Marisha Ali was outstanding in Green Book. He gives Don Shirley such gravitas. Um, that scene where, you know, he's yelling in the rain, you know, if I'm not black enough, if I'm not white enough, what am I? Very powerful scene. And, you know, he really is uh, such a commanding presence on screen. But I, I like all these, man. Uh, drivers, obviously, we know how great he is. A supporting role, which almost now feels like a rarity. I feel like he's always going to be a leading man now, thanks to Marriage Story. But really good as Flip, a Jewish guy who's wondering, why does this story impact me? Sam Elliott, this would have been a nice career achievement award. Stars born, obviously. He's got the big mustache, gravelly voiced. He's got some really good moments there with Bradley Cooper, where he's upset with his brother for being an alcoholic. Richard E. Grant, uh, he might be the best part of Can You Ever Forgive Me? He's so funny. His first scene in the bar with Melissa McCarthy, their verbal calisthenics back and forth is really funny. And he's surprisingly touching, especially when he calls her the C word at the end. And Sam Rockwell and Vice is probably the worst nomination of the five. I like Sam Rockwell a lot. He's a great actor, but I didn't really think he was playing a great George Bush. I mean, he's kind of just doing a, a loose in interpretation, impersonation of him. But I mean, I love him as an actor. I'm glad he won an Oscar for three billboards. So I will agree with the Academy. Joe? I'm going to agree with the Academy too. And, and I'm looking at it right now. Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor back to back because he won it from moonlight the year before and then green book for this year but if i if they gave out an oscar for mustaches i'd give it to sam elliott <laughs> well said best supporting actress this was was a lock when i met barry jenkins i told him i go bro regina king unbelievable he's like oh yeah no kidding she won for a bill street could talk double check this folks i believe she was not nominated for the sags which was insane i'm like wait she did not get nominated for best supporting actress screen actors Guild by her fellow actors yet won the oscar I still have no idea how the hell that happened. She won. She should have won. She's the best part of the movie. Who else was nominated? Amy Adams for Vice, Marina de Tavira for Roma, Emma Stone, The Favorite, and Rachel Rice, The Favorite. Yeah, Regina King wipes the floor with these. I mean, I don't even know what else I would nominate. I mean, Emma Stone and Rachel Vice are both fun in The Favorite, but I thought Coleman was the best of those. I didn't honestly really remember Amy Adams as Lynn Cheney. I don't think it's one of her best performances. And Marina de Tavira, I mean, she's the mom. She's fine, but Regina King in a route. Oh, yeah, she slays it there. And, and uh, former Cinephile guest, Barry Jenkins, directed. So every uh, I will go with Regina King. Absolutely. Barry's our man. And uh, that scene where she's trying to you know, tell the woman, hey, listen, what you've done here is wrong. She goes to Cuba. I mean, that's uh, heartbreaking. Two more to go. Best original screenplay was Green Book. Nick Vallelonga, Brian Curry, Peter Farrelly. Who else was nominated? The favorite? First Reform, written by Paul Schrader. 
Roma, Alfonso Caron, and Vice Adam McKay. Well, every year there's the one Oscar that matters the most to me, and this was the one for me for Paul Schrader because of how much I love Taxi Driver, Affliction, as previously mentioned, Hardcore here on Cinephile, uh, Coro Raging Bull. I mean, the guy is unbelievable. And First Reformed, I think, is an outstanding movie. I mean, I, I would have lost my mind if it got nominated for Best Picture. He'd been up for Best Director, which he should have been. But he got his first ever nomination for Best Original Screenplay. When he lost and was asked about it, he chuckled and said, can't compete with mediocrity. <laughs> so that tells you his thoughts <laughs> on Green Book. But it's an amazing movie. Ethan Hawke should have absolutely been nominated for Best Actor. I mean, I got it. Though I, first of all, it might have been my favorite movie of that year. I, I love that movie. It, it's, uh, for those who aren't aware, it's about a priest and uh, all that he's going through, spiritual struggles. Uh, his son was uh, killed in the uh, Gulf War, and he has a lot of guilt over that. He starts getting upset about environmental struggles and feels like he wants to do something about it. I've seen it at least twice, maybe three times, and every time I'm blown away by the script by Schrader and Ethan Hawke's performance. That should have won for sure. You know, I've never actually seen First Reform. I can't, I can't speak on it, but I'm definitely going to check it out. I guess I'll go with the favorite. Um, I was not expecting to enjoy that movie as much as I did, so I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I'll go with the favorite. Okay, and last one. It certainly was inventive. I agree. Best Adapted Screenplay. Finally, Spike Lee wins an Oscar, along with three others. He wrote Black Klansman, the script, based on the book by Ron Stallworth. Who else was nominated? The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, Joel and Ethan Cohen, Can You Ever Forgive Me, Nicole Olofenser, and Jeff Woody, If Beale Street Could Talk, Barry Jenkins, A Star is Born, Eric Roth, and Bradley Cooper. Yeah, that's that's the worst one. Roth, Cooper, and Will Fetters based on two other screenplays. Like, come on, dude. There's zero originality here. Like, I know it's adapted screenplay, but you adapted an adaptation. Like, enough. Uh, I'll go with Black Klansman. Great script. It's funny. It's audacious. It's smart. It's topical. It's one of those too good to be true. Um, as Spike himself said when he when he texted Jordan Peele, I believe co-produced, "Black man infiltrates KKK." That's our story. Like what? Like yeah, we're actually going to make this into a movie. I love the Coen Brothers, but this is an absurd nomination. I thought the Ballad of Buster Scruggs again was a, a disappointing movie. Not even an average movie. That, that's a disappointing movie. That's that's bananas that they got nominated. Like that's just one of those. Hey, we love the Coen Brothers. Okay, sure. If I had a number two choice, it would obviously be Barry Jenkins. I love the book by James Baldwin. I love Barry's work, and it's a really excellent screenplay. Yeah, I'm going to go with Black Klansman as well. If Beer Street Could Talk is incredible, but but you're right. A Star is Born. They're adapting an adaptation. I think this was the third or fourth time that it had been adapted. So I know that that also didn't do any favors for them when it came to Best Picture, but I'll go with Black Klansman for sure. All right, good addition here at Total Recall. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. Uh, hour plus, I know it was a little long, but thanks again to Dave Merhead. She was great, and thanks to all of you for listening. Subscribe, rate, and review. Next week here on Cinephile, Hamilton. That's right, it's coming to Disney Plus this Friday, so I'll have a review of that incredible highly original, very groundbreaking musical. In addition to that, a couple of the movies, End of the Affair. I might watch Scarface again. What the hell? Until then, we'll see you at the movies.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.